The new Jack Slater opens this weekend at the Odyssey. Like I didn't know that? They killed his second cousin. Big mistake. <laughs> Jack Slater 4. <laughs> well, I'm checking the print tonight. Midnight. I could arrange for you to gain admittance. That is, you know, if that sort of thing appeals to you. See it before it opens? Yeah. Who do I have to kill? <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Last Action Heroes. I'm in the movie. Holy cow, I'm in the movie. A review picked by patron David Smith. You're not just my hero, you're everybody's hero. Hosted by Brock. No one's going to tell this sweet prince good night. Stuart. Genuine article. And Arnie. Make no mistake, they are exceptionally well-trained. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. Say this. Grow up. Just say this one word. I don't want to say it. You can't possibly say it, because this movie is PG-13. We hope you enjoy the show. Focus! Hey, come on! Today we're talking about Last Action Hero, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, F. Murray Abraham, Art Carney, Charles Dance, Frank McRae, Tom Noonan, Robert Prosky, Anthony Quinn, Mercedes Rule, Austin O'Brien, directed by John McTiernan. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is your last podcast hero, Arnie. It's so strange that the star of the movie is the last bill in that list. That's just how big the star power of Last Action Hero is, that your main character is just below everybody. Well, we should talk about star power because Arnold was at the height of it when this thing came out. And I think everybody knows this movie is kind of notorious for beginning the end of his box office reign. This was considered a huge embarrassment, a big flop, a big mistake, if you will. Indeed, and he was coming off of his biggest hit pretty much of all time, because Terminator 2 was still on everybody's mind. That come out two years before then, and Red Heat was the last movie we talked about. Since then, he also had a string of hits. He had Twins with DeVito. Yep, very big. They had Kindergarten Cop. Less big, but, you know, a hit. Total Recall, which was huge, a special effects movie too. Hear that review in our archives. And of course, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Hear that review in our archives. <laughs> <laughs> which is why we skipped ahead so far. We've reviewed the big ones there. And personally, because of Terminator 2, I had started, for myself, going to the movies to see Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Because when Terminator 2 came out, I went back and watched The Terminator. I had loved Total Recall. And so this was a no-brainer. I had to see this in the theater because it's the new Schwarzenegger movie. And that would continue on through into the 90s, halfway through the 90s, of when Schwarzenegger's movies came out, I wanted to see them all on the power of Terminator 2, which I think is part of the reason this movie drew a lot of people cold because they wanted to come for another great action movie like Terminator 2, and they got this one. 
Well, speaking of drawing people cold, you say this is the start of his downturn. I really think of the start of his downturn as Batman and Robin. You know, I think that's where it really went to crap for him. I mean, after Last Action Hero, True Lies is one of the biggest hits of his career. So I don't think we're at the downfall yet. But I'm with Brock. You guys remember the story from Terminator 2's podcast where I was all in on Terminator 2. I was wearing the Terminator 2 sunglasses. So when Last Action Hero came out, I was reading movie magazines and I knew this had bad buzz surrounding it. But I didn't care. I was there opening weekend with a couple of friends of mine who would basically go to any movie I wanted to go to. So I'm like, we went to Jurassic Park last weekend. We're going to Last Action Hero this weekend. I went in with the lowest of expectations, and I walked out a fan. This is in our book, Underrated Movies We Recommend, shipping now if you haven't placed your order. And it's not a secret. I gave this a green arrow. Yeah, but it's underrated because it was hated. In 1993, the egg was on Arnold's face, and he didn't want to do this. What's kind of interesting about this movie was he had already decided no more action movies. This was a compromise. He had political ambitions. After T2, he was thinking politics. I'm 45 years old. I don't want to take the steroids anymore. How much longer can I really take off my shirt and do these kind of commando performances? Maria was feeding him other scripts. He wanted to do Tooth Fairy, which became a rock movie. He wanted to do Curious George as the man in the yellow hat. (laughs) He was thinking about... Doing movies that were not blood and guts because his Republican Party, specifically in this time, became the party of family values and did not like the fact. He was out of sync by going and starring in bloody, violent, R-rated shoot-em-ups that Republicans would then go and say are the reason why youth are going bad. I did read he blamed part of the reason this movie was a disappointment on the fact that Bill Clinton was president. (laughs) (laughs) But wait a minute. I also read, Stuart, that he was the first time he ever executive produced or produced a movie. He had a say in absolutely everything that went on with this movie. So if he didn't want to do this, is the reason he took such a big hand in decision making because he wanted to make sure it wouldn't turn out the way it actually did? He did not want to do violent action movies anymore. It would hurt his political ambitions. And so the thinking was that, yes, there are 15 million reasons that he did this movie. (laughs) And Sony told him that this would not just be a total recall body count. It had kids, that it would be more like twins in Kindergarten Cop, that it would show a side of him that he really wanted to be the second act of his movie career. He wasn't giving up on the movies. He was giving up on action hero parts. T2 was supposed to be it. And so, you know, he was having kids at this point as well with Maria's. And other people, too. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But anyway, this started as a spec script that a bunch of college kids had written. And then it was given to Shane Black for a million dollars. They're like, make it more like an Arnold movie. And then when Arnold read that script, he's like, no, I'm trying not to make this movie. Give it to William Goldman. Make it have heart. Make it so that it feels much more like a family film entertainment. And because we have so many ideas going on in this movie, I think part of the reason why it was such a chaotic production 
and maybe why it was not well received is because tonally it has ambitions to be many things at once. And I do think that many test screenings of this movie, as they were trying to tweak and make it the Arnold movie parody, they couldn't quite figure out whether they were trying to make Purple Rose of Cairo or Hot Shots. Yeah, I understand. And I think we'll discuss it as it goes through. This film has some tonal issues. This film had the deck stacked against it, though. I did listen to the movie commentary with director John McTiernan, who has his action bona fides. He did the first Predator. He did the first Die Hard. Hunt for Red October. Yeah, he was as big as Arnold. He had grown in the same way that Arnold had in the five years. And this movie had eight months from the time he was hired to the time it was released. There was only four weeks between the end of filming and release. The film opened one week after Jurassic Park, which was a behemoth. The studio's interference in this did not help a lot of the questions that could have been, let's face it, no matter what we say about this movie, a good re-edit might have given it a better shot. Absolutely. I wanted to say that up top. If this had been a summer 1994 movie, and they had taken a year to tweak and fix what's not working here, I think that this would be considered one of Arnold's best movies. And because they had to put it out there so fast, everything was rushed, though. I mean, they had all these tie-ins and things. <laughs> they had a rocket. They had paid NASA to splash Last Action Hero on the side of a rocket that didn't end up <laughs> launching. They had an inflatable Arnold that paraded around on a boat at Cannes, and it deflated when the photographers showed up. It's just kind of sad how they were trying to do these epic big promotions. I think there was a Burger King cup tie-in, action figure line, video games. It wasn't ready. First of all, it's not really the movie to do that, and it wasn't ready for that level of spectacle. And let's face it, when you're the number one movie star, people are gunning for you. They want you to fail. Yes. And so maybe part of the hate that was going on was simply that, oh yeah, two years ago, you could crow you had the biggest movie of the summer, and now we're going to say you have the worst movie of the summer, whether that is or is not true. And after coming off Terminator 2 and having such an action hero career with a movie called The Last Action Hero, you see why they would want the video games and why they'd want the action figures and everything. It makes sense for the next step for him to be embracing that and going even bigger. If the next movie he'd done after Terminator 2 was True Lies, everybody would be bowing down before him and you'd have True Lies action figures and True Lies on a rocket, I have no doubt. And that would have paid off. Maybe the rocket would have launched, you know? Mm -hmm. James Cameron would have made sure. He would have made some phone calls to NASA. <laughs> he has those ties. But it's worth pointing out that at the time, this was perceived as an incredible failure. It lost $20 million, which now sounds like petty cash. But it did lose money at the box office. It did get six Razzie nominations. It did not win any of those. Indecent Proposal was the dog of 1993, and deservingly so. It is much, much worse than this movie. But the perception was that this movie really hurt Arnold and hurt Sony, and people wanted it to go down. But not everyone hated this movie. We're here to talk about this. Part of the reason why we're doing an Arnold retrospective is because longtime donor David Smith said, you guys cover Last Action Hero. Yeah, he was a 90s kid, Arnold was his hero, 
And while Terminator 2 was his favorite, he loved this movie and watched it nonstop growing up. It's probably worth pointing out he's a few years younger than us, so the way that I would (laughs) rewatch Beverly Hills Cop endlessly, he'd watch this endlessly. I love this story. He dressed as Jack Slater for a book report presentation on Arnold's biography in middle school. Oh, that's cool. I like that jacket he's wearing, so that's pretty neat if he has the jacket. (laughs) Snakeskin boots. Yeah. Yeah, the big belt buckle. It's a cool look with the red t-shirt. He'd make reproductions of the magic movie ticket out of construction paper. He thinks it's ahead of its time in regard to how meta and self-referential it is. He thinks the humor works. And if it had been released later, it might have been better received. So it's getting a bit of a reappraisal. I did read on Wiki it's considered now a cult classic. But much like we did when we put it in the book, David Smith feels it's underrated and wanted to hear us discuss it. Well, Artie, there's no mystery that you feel the same way. But let's find out how we all feel about this. Let's get a plot. Let's get into this last action hero. Austin O'Brien plays Danny Madigan, a 10-year-old boy who is obsessed with action movies. His favorite franchise is the Jack Slater series, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as a Los Angeles police officer with a penchant for explosions. The fourth movie in the series is about to come out, and thanks to friendly projectionist Nick, played by Robert Prosky, Danny gets to see the movie at a private midnight screening a day before it's released. Nick plays up the event, breaking out his old Usher uniform, and giving Danny a golden ticket that he, Nick, got from Harry Houdini. Nick tears the ticket, which activates its magic, and Danny finds himself transported into the world of Jack Slater 4, full of celebrity cameos, animated cats, and over-the-top villains. One of those villains is Mr. Benedict, played by Charles Dance. Benedict is the right-hand man of clueless mobster Tony Vivaldi, played by Anthony Quinn, But Benedict realizes there's something not right about Danny. The boy knows things he couldn't possibly know. Danny knows them because he saw them in the movie. Benedict kidnaps Danny and, of course, the boy is rescued by Slater. But Benedict takes the boy's wallet with the half of the torn ticket. This allows Benedict to travel from his film world to real-world crime-ridden New York City. Jack Slater refuses to believe Danny's arguments that they're in a movie. But after Benedict escapes the movie world, Slater is forced to believe it, and he and Danny go to the real world to give chase. Benedict, realizing that in the real world he can perform crime effortlessly, decides to bring in someone to kill Jack Slater, the bad guy from Jack Slater 3, called The Ripper, played by Tom Noonan. Only, Benedict sees an easy way to kill Slater. Rather than attack the cop directly, The Ripper could kill Arnold Schwarzenegger at the New York premiere of Jack Slater 4. No Schwarzenegger, no Slater and the two villains can then continue their various crime sprees unencumbered. Slater succeeds in stopping the Ripper, and also kills Benedict in a showdown. However, Benedict shoots Slater in the chest. This wound is fatal in the real world, but would be nothing in a movie. Danny takes Slater back to the movie theater and, using the magic ticket, is able to return Slater to his film world. Slater is easily healed there, but seems to be a bit wiser knowing that he's a fictional character, and he literally rides into the Los Angeles sunset as credits roll. As we start, we, I think, would know immediately the way that this screen comes flipping in that we're watching a movie. If it seems ridiculous and it seems over the top, we're to expect to laugh at the tropes and not take it seriously. It's Lethal Weapon 3, right? I mean, I'm just thinking about the beginning of Lethal Weapon 3, 
where they have all the cops and they have the big action scene at the beginning before the movie starts that's unrelated to the movie. It's Christmas time, there are children at a school, they really pile on all the tropes. Well, the Christmas time thing is Shane Black, and Shane Black wrote this, so are they making fun of the trope? Or is Shane Black just doing what Shane Black does? I can't decide if that's irony. No, 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 it's very specific. Shane Black wrote Lethal Weapon 1, but he hates what became of the franchise by Lethal Weapon 3. There's a marked difference in tone as that series progressed. And what I think he's satirizing is how the action movie genre has wussed out, has become a ridiculous cartoon. I think this is Shane Black having revenge at people that don't let him write the way that he wants to. And they also have the angry cop, and they have the young guy who goes to get uh, whatever he does. That was the guy from Truman Show. The angry cop, you know, is the trope of the angry police chief. Ironically, that is the police chief from 48 Hours. He's basically just taking that character up one notch. If you go back to our 48 Hours retrospective, he shouted at everything. He didn't talk so much about his Hershey Highway as he does in this film, but he shouted so much at Nick Nolte in 48 Hours and another 48 Hours. And then I think he just became a parody of himself in the 90s. He also did this stick and loaded weapon. Right, so I get why you would use him. If you're making fun of a genre, if this is satire, you get people that did it straight-faced, and then you have them have a little bit of fun with it, doing it again. I don't get Tina Turner. I'll be honest. When Tina Turner busts in as the mayor of Los Angeles, is that just because she had a free day and the same agent? She don't need another hero? (laughs) Right, another action hero. I think it's because it's an unnecessary celebrity cameo. Okay. That's exactly what it is. What are they doing here? Why are they in this movie kind of thing? I actually enjoyed her appearance here in this scene. With her there, it really accentuates the we are really in an over-the-top action movie scenario. Okay, so I'm going to throw it out there. As the person that has put the most wet blankets on (laughs) Arnold movies and the action genre, can you really make satire out of something that is in of itself a cartoon? Isn't what they're trying to do like shooting fish in a barrel? The difference is they're winking at the audience while they do it. When you watch Lethal Weapon 3, that movie is cartoonish, but not by design. They think that they're really making some adrenalizing action in that thing, and by the time you get to Lethal Weapon 4, I don't know what they're thinking. But here, they're winking at us and go, you know this is ridiculous. I don't think Richard Donner ever winked at us and said, this is silliness. Here, they're taking it up to a ridiculous level. And yet, the joke is, it's not that much more ridiculous than the real thing. I mean, there are so many police cars in that one establishing shot of this. There's probably 50 police cars. It's hysterical. But it's also not so much more than you would see in Die Hard. Right, but my issue here with this opening scene is just that I enjoy those kind of action movies. And I enjoy going into an action movie and escaping into them. I am well aware of the tropes, and sometimes I don't enjoy that the tropes are there because it's just nothing but tropes, and here is what they're trying to accentuate. But when you have a good action movie, when you have all these aspects to it, depending on how they do it, you enjoy a good action movie, and what they're doing here is they're sending up an action movie in the heyday of action movies. So it's, for me, in 2022 when I watched it, I got what they were doing, I got the joke, it's entertaining, however... 
I don't think they're really satirizing that much here. I think this comes into play later in the movie on how they keep pointing out how this is all embellished. I definitely think there's a lot of stuff here, especially punching the lieutenant governor and the trick of the hostage is the one who hurts the villain so that the hero can get the shot in. We're going to get Tom Noonan here as the Ripper. And he's kind of calling back to his Tooth Fairy character from Manhunter, I feel, with the makeup and the weird teeth he's got going on here. Which is strange because that movie isn't a silly Arnhem movie. It doesn't really fit. But yes, that is obviously what they've brought in here, is someone that has played this kind of villain role before. If you think about Dirty Harry and the way that Scorpio had taken the school bus hostage in that first movie... This is it inflated a hundred times. And Jack Slater is the Dirty Harry character, especially with his entrance and things like that, walking over to the police cars. The gun. Right, the gun. And I think in a movie like this, it's going to send up action movies so much later on. You need a moment like this in the beginning to show a flat-out action movie. It's just basic screenwriting. You have to establish what we're going to satirize later. While doing that, of course, they're making it larger than life for us to get the jokes. I kind of enjoyed the scene because it was embellished, but at the same time, I kind of enjoyed it as an action scene because I enjoy these kind of action movies. You're kind of hitting my thesis, Brock. I feel like this actually works as an action movie as well as being a parody of action movies. It's not Three Amigos, which wouldn't necessarily work as a classic Western. Or Airplane is not a disaster movie. Exactly. So I think that this opening scene, by getting John McTiernan, and not Zucker Brothers, what you get is really cool cinematography. When the Ripper throws that axe in slow-mo, and Arnold barely dodges the axe and things, that's a cool-looking scene, and I think McTiernan can't help but fall back, especially since he has absolutely no time to do anything else. He just falls back on what he knows and shoots it like a cool action movie, and so that undercuts a little bit of the humor. So you bring up an interesting point, which is that what you guys are saying is you would watch Jack Slater 3 and like it. And I'm going to just put it out there. I don't like those. I strongly don't like those kinds of movies. I gave Commando almost a brown arrow because to me, it is knowing and how silly it is. You guys say that that's not camp, that that's playing it straight. And to me, that was the cartoon. That was the comedy. If you want to laugh, watch Commando. You don't need to watch this. We talked about Commando on that show. I'm not going to go back into that now. But I think what they're setting up in this opening scene is very much important for the rest of the movie. Whether or not I'm agreeing with Arnie 100% on his thesis, we'll talk about that as we go. But I think for this opening scene, it completely works as a typical action movie, but with heightened aspects to point out to the audience that we are aware how silly these things can be. But let me ask you, though, if we're picking movie tropes, I can't think of a single action movie, because action movies are feel-good times. You may kill the girlfriend at the end of the action movie. You may kill the partner at the end of the action movie. You never kill the kid at the end of an action movie. Everybody's going to walk out of there going, what the f- Well, let's delineate. We're acting like action movies are monolithic. 80s action movies don't kill the kid. 70s action movies would kill the kid. Charles Bronson's wife and daughter, bad things happen to them. At the start, but you don't end on such a dour note, and they're making fun of 80s 
action movies here. They're not really going into that 70s stuff yet. Yeah, Seven would famously kill a major character. That's the 90s being nihilistic. Yes, it can be done. But does this movie correctly identify all the tropes of an 80s Arnold movie? No, they did not kill Alyssa Milano. They would never have killed Alyssa Milano. Exactly. (laughs) So the fact that Jack Slater is a grieving dad feels like a rewrite when they turned to William Goldman and said, hey, can you put more heart into this film? I guess the closest I can come to this is Amazing Spider-Man 2, because you kill Gwen Stacy, and you have this extended denouement of Andrew Garfield grieving, but then it ended finally with him suiting back up. I suppose you could have done that. You could have had 10 minutes of Jack Slater grieving for his son and not wanting to get back out there, and the police chief being a good friend, and then finally you end Jack Slater 3 with him getting back out there and shooting somebody. That, I suppose you could do it. Yeah, there are nihilistic movies that do do it unforgiven. I mean, there's ways that you can take out the innocent child, but never in a bombastic Arnold movie that this is supposed to be. The fact that we even learn this later and don't understand it in this moment feels like this is all part of the rewriting that happened as this movie chaotically came into being. It probably wasn't the original intent to say that Jack Slater's kid goes off the roof and dies, but because they want to draw parallels between Jack Slater and the boy in the audience, Danny Madigan, we immediately jump to the quote-unquote real world. Now, Brock, you say that we need to establish the rules of the fictional world in order to better understand the difference between where audiences are and where fictional characters are. But this is supposed to be New York. I was shocked. It took me a while to realize, because I know that this is Sunset. I know that this is the Hollywood area of Los Angeles. They are pretending that this is Times Square, I guess. Oh, wow. This is L.A.? It's true L.A. We talked about this during Jason Takes Manhattan. This is Hollywood Manhattan. This is not Manhattan. They fooled me with all the signs and the... Street vendors and everything else? No, no, no. Later in the movie, we have Times Square for sure. But here in the beginning, where he lives in this movie theater with the accentuated graffiti. That's right by Hollywood and Vine, which didn't exist at that time. But any tourist would know this street. It was a surprise to me that we were supposed to think that this was the real New York. Not only that, it's the alley issue we've talked about a thousand times. There are no such alleys. It sold me then and it sold me now. You know, I thought about the alley later on, and the thing is, there are side stage doors. We don't see him go down an alley. I kind of thought maybe he was at the side door. It didn't play for me at all as New York. I also have to say right at the top, this is kind of like watching a new movie, even though I did see it the one time in the theater. I have not returned to this movie in 30 years, so I did not remember most of it. I remembered parts, little bits and pieces. So it's very much like a new movie for me, which is actually kind of a cool thing because of the reputation this movie has nowadays, and people are revisiting it. So I had no idea he was in New York. I had no idea why this was in New York, and why even bother to have it. Why doesn't this kid live in L.A.? If these movies are taking place in Los Angeles, why don't have the boy live in the real Los Angeles? It'd be a better parallel. If the intent was to show that there's a real world that has rules that are very different from movie rules, you would not fake a New York on a Los Angeles street. I feel like having New York is a good contrast. Movies set in New York had a different feel than movies set in L.A., and so many of these action movies 
were set in LA. The LAPD is a haven to action heroes. And so I liked this. I liked that it was set in New York. I liked this kid going to the New York movie. I laughed that this movie theater is about to close. There's a sign outside that it's about to become a Lowe's Metroplex. Thinking about Times Square, when I go to Times Square to see movies, I'm going to an AMC and there's a Lowe's right across the street from it. So this is working for me. I liked the theater design. I love old-fashioned movies. The kid goes to the theater to complain the reel broke. And then he goes into the biggest projection booth I've ever seen. This thing is palatial with all sorts of cool signs and things that are supposed to set up that Robert Prosky's background with Houdini and things when this was a vaudeville house I talk about later in the movie. But that gigantic room for projector, that made me laugh because that's only in the movies. So this is supposed to be the real world, and that's clearly a giant set they built when a projection booth, from what I've seen, and the few I've seen, I haven't seen many, it's a small little booth on top of a theater. So it may not be a big mistake, but a mistake of this movie, I think we all have to agree, is it does not establish the two worlds very well. It does not say harsh reality versus mythical fantasy. You don't think that the home invasion hits harsh reality? I don't even know what that is. That is a scene that probably should have been cut. That is the harsh reality. That is showing how crime happens in real life versus how crime happens in movies, and that there's not a cop there to help and to establish the character arc for this kid. This kid is a coward. This kid is given a chance to stab the robber that comes into his home and doesn't pick up the knife. I mean, the guy's daring him. The guy turns his back. You could easily stab that guy. Is that what he should have done? Is that what children should do when they're chained to toilets? Well, he wasn't chained yet. And yes, the three rules in case of invasion is run, hide, and if hiding doesn't work, attack. Those are what you are trained to do in case of an active shooter. That child's trained to do that? I'm saying what I am trained to do at my workplace. Okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, very different. I do not think we want to put out a movie that says, kids, if someone breaks into your home, you can take them. Hey, kids listening to this podcast, give it a shot. Well, wait a minute. Home Alone came out before this, but I completely disagree with Arnie. This kid could not have stabbed that guy in the back for a variety of reasons, one of which, of course, if he tried to do it and the guy heard he was about to do it, he would have turned around and hit the kid and probably killed him. My issue with the home invasion part of it is it's way too dark. We talk about tone issues and tone flops. This one is huge because if you're trying to establish this real world as harsher than the other one, this is a very hard way to do it. Furthermore, when the kid is in the movie theater before we see this scene, he already has scabs all over his hands. And they come up later in the movie, too. You see them later and on, and then miraculously they heal when he's in the movie with Slater. But where did he get those from? Probably from a scuffle, a deleted scene where he had a fight at school or something. Right. That's a better way to establish this kid having a tough life in real life. That's why he goes to the movie theater with his mom being a working mother, and he's home by himself with a deceased father. That's a better way to do it than a home invasion, especially since he still has those wounds on his hands. Clearly, there was something else there to help establish it. I did watch all the deleted scenes on the 4K DVD. There was nothing about him having a schoolyard fight, which is what the scabs kind of imply. I, maybe something wasn't filmed, or there could be other deleted scenes they didn't include on the disc. And McTiernan said they didn't have enough time to cut stuff out of this film. He said that there's at least 10 minutes he'd like cut out of this film but it basically went from the camera to the screen. He did not have much time to edit this at all. So the fact that there are deleted scenes was a 
revelation to me. I didn't even think they would. But the home invasion, I disagree with you both. I think you need to go big to establish what crime is, not what schoolyard bullies are. What crime is in crime-ridden New York at this time and show that even a low-level home invader probably robbing the house for drugs is compared to the big criminals that you see on screen that aren't nearly as dangerous. Yeah, if you do that, then you need to bring that back in the third act, which they will not do. They will pretend that the real world is a fantasy place in the climax of this film. Wait a minute. They do establish a little bit when Charles Dance gets into the real world from the movie screen later in the movie that he's surprised that no cops come around, no sirens go when he shoots a gun. So they do all of that with Charles Dance later in the movie, more in the tone of the rest of the movie. This one here, it's basically redundant when you have the Charles Dance scene later on. But unfortunately for this scene, because of the handcuff key in his pocket, you have to keep it in. Because it's important later in the movie that the kid has the handcuff key in his pocket. Maybe. It gets lost in the shovel. We're also skipping over another thing that probably should have just been cut. He does end up going to school to English class where Joan <laughs> Plowright is trying to sell... I mean, teachers did do this. I remember very specifically my history teacher marching in three classrooms full of students to show them a video of Janet Jackson's control to try and dramatize the Revolutionary War. And he was like, see, <laughs> she wants control just like we wanted control. Oh, my God. That makes me feel so much better about my college papers. And so I can imagine there is some sad English teacher who is going to say Hamlet is the first action hero. You know what this reminds me of? And I wonder if they even got the same narrator. But this is a cut scene, it feels, from UHF, where they did make an Arnold parody with a similar narrator of Conan the Librarian. Gandhi, too, is more in sync with this one. I thought the same thing, I had the same note. It's right out of UHF. Also, don't forget, Joan Plowright was married to Laurence Olivier, so it's kind of funny that she has this scene about Laurence Olivier. This is a really fun moment in this movie. Completely unnecessary, but a lot of fun. It's the one moment of pure comedy, unironic comedy. Most of this movie plays on irony, and this is a in-living-color sketch. Right juxtaposed right next to Mercedes Rule trying to get another Oscar saying, I wish I could be home for my kid, and a violent home invasion. So tonally, this is a mess, and you have to kill something here in order to make this work. We don't get started in Act 2 until the nearly 30-minute mark. This movie is 10 minutes too long, at least, and you can feel it here. They're just trying too many things, and it's just not being consistent. I also just want to put it out there. And I wonder if you guys feel the same way. They got the wrong kid. This kid is smarmy and spends much of the movie poo-pooing, really, Jack Slater, when I think that you really wanted someone that felt more bullied, a little less confident, a little bit more in need of a father figure. I like Austin O'Brien in this. I'll agree with you that he comes off much older than 10, and he was probably only 11 or 12 when this was filmed, but he comes off just a little bit too old to be a victim. Yes. Had we gotten one of the little kids from It Chapter 1 here, the one with the glasses, I would have completely bought not picking up the knife and not stabbing that guy in the back. 
you get Austin O'Brien here, and I'm like, why aren't you grabbing that knife? It's the way it's played. So I agree with you. I like Austin overall in this film, but a younger-looking, younger-acting kid probably could have gone a little further, because I was surprised when I discovered he was supposed to be 10. I honestly thought this kid was, like, 14. I agree with you that they may have found the wrong kid, but I also feel the way the character is written and when he gets into the movie is unfortunate. It's not necessarily his fault with the script he was given, but certainly it doesn't help. Let's also keep in mind that much of this script is by Shane Black, who, when he writes for children many times in his adult R-rated movies, makes them wiseacre, beyond their years, and prone to violence. So I do feel like the representation we have is Shane Black's idea of a 10-year-old. And maybe not the Spielbergian kid that you'd want for a heart tugger. It is very much like the daughter from The Nice Guys, you're right. I do want to point out that we have covered him before in Lawnmower Man. I don't remember him in it. He's also the Macaulay Culkin replacement after, spoiler alert, the bees in My Girl. Yes, in My Girl too. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the movie I kept going back to was The NeverEnding Story. This movie feels kind of like a film remake in some ways. It is never-ending. I agree with you. It's way too long. <laughs> the little kid goes into the bookstore, and there's the weird bookseller who gives him this magic book, and he's transported into the world of the book. And here... We have a little kid with the strange projectionist. The projectionist is going to give him this magic ticket, and he's going to be transported into the world of the movie. They can cut this too, right? This ticket shit is garbage. Houdini gave him the ticket. Kill this. Do not do this. I think the ticket shit is written terribly. Harry Houdini is a notorious stage magician, not a notorious, oh, he actually was a wizard like Merlin. So to have him actually have a magic ticket doesn't make any sense. Plus, Robert Prosky in this scene is a completely different character than he was in the first scene when we saw him. With the suit on and the whole thing, it just it comes off really creepy and weird like he's high on something compared to the character we met previously in the other scene. Keep in mind this ticket comes from Tibet. It was given to the magician in India from the magician in Tibet. And Tibet is mystical. They have a lot of magic movie theaters in Tibet. I mean, this is garbage. Really, this shouldn't even be a point of contention. They needed another way to do this. The magic ticket is absolute garbage. And I've mentioned it already. Woody Allen made this movie about seven years earlier. It was called Purple Rose of Cairo. And it was about Mia Farrow as a mousy, battered woman who escapes her bad life by going to the movies in Depression era. And her movie idol steps off the screen and has a romance with her. Now, it's a Woody Allen movie. It's not an action movie. So it follows different tropes. But it follows the exact same beats of this movie about him trying to live in the real world, her trying to live in the movie world, and in the end, an impossible romance. It's heartfelt and it's heart-tugging. And they didn't feel a need to explain this at all. It just ends up becoming a device. I think less explanation is better then Harry Houdini got it from Tibet. And the original script, as written by those college guys you mentioned, had no explanation. He was just transported in. There shouldn't be. There is no explaining it unless you're going to write into the movie Tibetans. <laughs> if we're going to get back to Houdini, if Houdini's going to be at the end of this movie, you bring up Houdini. If he's not, don't go there. I just like the magic ticket as the MacGuffin of the film that is needed for the climax of the film, that the ticket 
is the talisman that allows you to go. Yes, the few lines about where the ticket came from, I don't need those lines. This projectionist is mysterious enough in his usher uniform that he could just have the ticket the same way the bookseller in NeverEnding Story just had the book. I thought they were going to reveal that he was Houdini or that he had engineered this through magic. It seems weird that he hasn't gone back and experienced the movies in this way. I thought he was going to make this kid the projectionist at the end. So, Arnie, to your point there, this is not the magic talisman that helps him go back and forth. It helps to get Charles Dance through, but the boy and Jack Slater get back to the real world without the use of the ticket. The magic door is still open is the excuse they use, so therefore they undercut the magic of the ticket with getting the boy and Jack Slater back into the real world because they don't have it. So therefore, you don't really need the talisman, as you call it, for that magic to happen because two of the characters don't even have it and they still use the power. Once, and I can forgive the way it's done. Yeah, I think a lot of people will overlook this, but it's not a strength of this movie. I mean, let's just talk about how it happened. So yes, even though he was just brutally attacked in his home, he still goes to the midnight screening of Jack Slater 4, and he's alone in this movie theater, and we get a lot of in-jokes. They have to do a lot of setup here. So again, this movie being long, we have to see scenes without Jack Slater establishing villains and henchmen, and a whole mob war plot that, again, I'm wondering, are action movie fans following this? Are they getting the nuances of this? Is this too sophisticated? For Commando fans. I can't speak for all action fans. I can speak for myself and say I'm following it just fine. It's very simple. I think so. Also having Anthony Quinn and Art Carney there is a lot of fun for me, knowing who they are. And I think establishing the actual movie plot that the boy is going to jump into is actually a good idea. And the fact that they have the second cousin thing is very funny. So this part works for me just fine. I think there's plenty clear cut on what they're doing and why they're doing it here and at place. I mean, I get what they're trying to do, and I do think it's important to understand the world that this kid is going to be blasted into. But it's all kind of random when, yes, the joke is that Jack Slater, as many movie hero, I mean, it's something I've mocked in many a podcast. They have to kill relatives of people in order for you to gain sympathy and accept that they can go on these violent rampages (laughs) The fact that they've reached his second cousin, played by the guy from The Honeymooners, is a joke. Yes, the second cousin is a very broad joke, but the fact that they have Danny saying in the real world, they killed his second cousin, big mistake. You'd think that even in the real world, you'd be rolling your eyes at the second cousin line. You say that, but when I reviewed Commando with you guys, you guys didn't want to roll your eyes. Or maybe you like rolling your eyes, but you're not willing to say that the movies don't. And so this is the disconnect I always have with these movies, is that everyone should understand these premises are dumb. And yet, I hear you guys have a buy-in sometimes, that you can be convinced, or you just go with it in spite of or because of its inanity. You go to those movies because you understand what kind of movies they are and you're entertained by them. And sometimes it's not about the ending of the movie. It's about how they get there. I've said that a thousand times about sports movies and romance movies. Same thing with action movies. But we're talking very specifically about incredibly stupid action movies with ridiculous premises that people will accept. I think the best action movies obviously go above those. Yes. Die Hard is not one of those movies. 
Commando is one of those movies. I understand. I'm trying to tell you that there is a place for a commando in this world. In our world, I mean, not Jack Slater's world. But in Jack Slater's situation, the second cousin is merely just a over-the-top acknowledgement of sometimes these premises are insane. The car chase that comes in, though, again, you know, because Shane Black is writing this, I do go more to those late 80s, post-diehard action movies for what this is comparing to than Commando, mid-80s, Rambo 2. I feel like there's a differentiation there. There's a slickness to those late 80s movies. Commando was just a little rough-looking. And this opening car chase here is funny and fun to me the way it is mocking the tropes. I do roll my eyes at somebody being killed by a flying ice cream cone. And not just anybody. Al Leong, who is a staple in 80s action movies. That was him? Yeah, it was him. Okay, I thought it was, but I didn't see his name in the credits, so I missed it. I looked it up on IMDb to make sure. It definitely was him, and it's funny, and him being there adds credibility, quote-unquote, to this action movie for me, because <laughs> he's played so many action henchmen. And that the car goes exploding into a room where there just happens to be a lingerie shoot going on. We talked about it in Commando, how the fight just happened to break in on two people having sex so you could have a gratuitous titty shot. And here it just goes into this lingerie thing, and there's a guy doing a full body burn. It is showing me the tropes, some of which pre to this movie, I didn't realize how tropish they were. Also, just have to point out the James Bond on the side of the car. The car goes on two wheels and also all the product placement, Coca-Cola and Texaco. So yes, they are absolutely doubling down on this is a action movie and here are some tropes. No question about it. This action scene is doing it well. But is the Baskin Robbins product placement <laughs> undercut by the killer ice cream cone or is that pro Baskin Robbins? I'll just say that Ant-Man was better looking for Baskin-Robbins than Last Action Hero. Okay, so I hear laughter, I'm hearing enjoyment. I hate to be this guy, but I'm like, this feels like fish in a barrel. Of course action movies are like that. When you watch them, you recognize this. Having them pointed out specifically by this kid in a back seat who's going to spend an hour going, this is not real, this is just a movie. That's annoying. That's scrappy-do annoying. <laughs> I don't think this is good at all. Wow. The kid, the entire time he's in this Jack Slater movie, pointing out how this is a movie, is a bad choice. If this kid went along with, oh, this is an action movie, and I know all this stuff that you don't know, and helps Jack Slater get through the plot. Right. I'm living my dream. Right. I love this. Not, I'm smarter than this, and you're so stupid. So if the kid was actually helping Jack Slater solve the crime and be in the movie and enjoy being in the movie, this movie would have been a fantastically fun, entertaining movie. You could have figured out a way to get him in there without the stupid ticket, but to have him poo-poo and everything constantly, non-stop while he's there, makes very little sense and takes away from the fun. Wouldn't it have been more fun to have all of those gags, but with the kid enjoying the fact that he's in that and telling us, the audience, that in some way instead of trying to shit on it while he's in the movie? It makes zero sense. It's the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. A fun movie would have an action fan get into the movie and finagle his way into becoming the guy's partner, not going to the police station and saying, look at all this crap. It's why this movie does not work. I'll just put it that bluntly. I think that it does work. I agree with you that what you're describing would be more fun. And I think we've 
seen that this is wish fulfillment for him. He could call out things like, I can't believe there's an animated cat. And I was so disappointed it was Danny DeVito and not MC Scat Cat (laughs) myself. But he could call these things out with shock. But it does seem a little bit much that he is trying to convince movie characters you're in a movie instead of rolling with it. By the same token, our point of view character, he's able to point out things that, again, I wouldn't necessarily notice. I wouldn't necessarily notice the lack of unattractive women in a video store that's staffed by Bobby Brown from the Cherry Pie video and other models. Yeah, but it's a funnier gag when he walks by Robert Patrick and Sharon Stone, who's in character from Basic Instinct right there in front of the police station. It's a funnier gag when the guy pairs up the two unlikely partners, the rabbi and... Who I forget who it was. <laughs> I forget. I think it was just a regular guy and a rabbi, and that's the joke. I mean, it's like cop and a half. Burt Reynolds is just your standard cop. The funny part is the half. Right. So then you have the animated cat there, too. So we see those jokes, and they're funny to us. The Stallone joke is Terminator 2. That is funny to us, and the kid reacting to that, because he sees that, that's funnier. I think if we, the audience, notice how pretty everybody is without them calling it out, it's a stronger joke. It really feels like this kid pointing everything out takes away from all of this satire, and it makes it a dumber movie for it. This feels like Stewart got shoved in an Arnold movie. Young Stewart that doesn't like these movies got shoved into this and is hating it and going, this is so dumb. What should be happening on the emotional level, what I think they are supposed to be getting to but never do, is here's a kid that did not have a father, and the movies were his parent. And now he actually, this father figure action star and him can actually be close. And they've even gone so far as to say that the action hero has also lost his son. That does not happen in the middle of this movie. I do not see these two connect for lots of reasons, including maybe Arnold is not capable of that kind of performance. He falters on the dramatic. I agree. That is a criticism I've always had with this movie. It gets worse in, I feel, the third act than here. But the connection between them feels very tropish of a buddy cop film where he'd have to indulge this pain in the ass that's been designated as partner instead of going down the rabbit holes he'd prefer to to investigate whoever attacked him on that highway. So what I'm hearing you guys say is if you like these kinds of movies, It's fun to see this level of satire. If you hate these kinds of movies, this satire is not enough. Well, the way they're doing the satire for me is not playing. So I enjoy the satire being done, but the fact that they keep calling it out takes away entirely from the enjoyment of it. And then there's just different levels. I feel like it's a really insider joke to know that all phone numbers in movies are 555. It's another thing to have Rottweilers that will do cheerleader pyramids. (laughs) I mean, that's from Hot Shots or something. You can feel all the different writers working at all the different levels. And instead of it gelling, you can feel that each scene feels disconnected from the last. And it's a real struggle. Whether you like this movie or not, it's incredibly messy. You say it's inconsistent. I say there's humor that works at various different levels. Some people do know the 555 trope and don't need it called out whereas other people may not find that amusing, will laugh at a dog pyramid. This is a comedy action film in that order, 
And with humor, you gotta throw a lot of shit at a wall and see what sticks, and different things will stick for different people. I don't laugh at a Rottweiler pyramid. I wonder how they did it, but I don't laugh at it. But I do find the video store scene with Sylvester Stallone as the world's shortest Terminator very amusing. Well, I think that the humor of the dogs in a pyramid, of which I did laugh at because I thought it was so silly, is not tonally consistent with the humor and satire of the movie. That's what I'm saying. Right. I also think the worst comedies are the kinds that throw different kinds of comedy at you. You have to have a consistent kind of comedy tone. Just like a horror movie, either you're a slasher movie or you're a suspense movie, you're rarely both, and so you have to have the same kind of tone consistency in a comedy. Here, when an action movie, there's always a certain kind of comedy, certain kind of humor in action movies, and you could play that up more. So when you have a joke that is as subtle as the odd job looking butler, which is a great idea to have a guy like that in a movie like this, right before you see a dogs and pyramids, that's an inconsistent satire humor. They're all over the place with what they're trying to satirize or make humor or make fun of. Yeah, and I think you're right. Comedies do throw everything at the wall and some jokes you're going to laugh at and some you don't, but you do want them to be all of the same piece. And so to have these kind of deep cut intellectual comedy about the way movies work. It's a strange pairing with the action genre in general. And then here, yeah, they bring up Odd Job and then they don't even use him. The real henchman is Charles Dance as, I mean, again, this is funny, but pick one. It's either Odd Job or it's the villain with the changing glass eyeball, but not both. Okay, but Odd Job's barely in this movie and you get Charles Dance here larger than life. If I thought about this movie, I watched this movie just a few years ago for our book. I watch it every few years just for fun. And if I came back to this movie, I wouldn't have remembered there's an odd job character in this movie, but I remember Charles Dance as being my favorite part of this movie. I should just go ahead and put it out there. I've never seen this movie before. I think I saw bits and pieces of it. This is the first time I've actually watched it. Earlier I mentioned I remember very little about it, just things here and there. Charles Dance with the have a nice day eye, the smiley face eye, is the one thing I always think of first. And I always think of Charles Dance when I think of this movie. And I would say this movie is on better footing once it realizes it can parody Bond. Once it sort of becomes this Austin Powers before Austin Powers, I think that it's solid. But again, not consistent. We have a love interest introduced for this kid. We saw him gawking at her cardboard standee at the beginning of the movie, but Whitney is played by Meredith Caprice, who's actually played by Brigitte Wilson. I think she only gets this next scene, and that's pretty much it. She shows up a little later to give Jack some clothes. I wish there was more for her to do. We've reviewed her in the first Mortal Kombat, where she was Sonya Blade shortly after this. <laughs> I know her primarily from... Billy Madison, though, and from being Pete Sampras's wife. But yeah, she is playing Jack Slater's teenage daughter here, I guess college age. And is that a trope? I suppose Danny Glover did have the daughter doing the condom commercial and things. And here she's supposed to kiss a skeevy college freshman. Yeah, there's that. But I would argue this is the part that's not supposed to be tropish. This is the time to bond scene. The idea that this kid's going to experience his first kiss and discover love and all of that. Earlier, Jack Slater talked about, you're not dead, you're going to have to grow up and shave and all that stuff. This is the beginning of him showing 
how to be an adult awkwardly. And Whitney is just not written well enough for this to become meaningful. I think she's more of a trope, but I understand your point. I think the way she looks, the way she acts, her dialogue she's given, and especially the way she's played, she is the beautiful woman in an action movie. Yeah, but she makes the salient point that I think is a dramatic point. The movie stops being funny for a second, that Danny is the same age that Andrew would be, and this sends Jack off to leave the house because he's emotionally wrecked thinking about the son. This is where we learn that son went off the roof and died. And so they're drawing that parallel in that Danny can be his new son, that there is something emotionally that both people need from each other as they go through this tropish adventure where, yeah, Charles Dance is going to blow back in and she's going to be the traditional kick-ass daughter. This is, I think, really a first moment where Jack Slater is being impacted by the real world, having emotions that the action hero might not have, breaking character and becoming something more. And I wish that was more emphasized because it doesn't last very long because Charles Dance is going to break into this house and the next time we see Jack Slater, he's all action hero again. And that's a fun little action scene, too, and he comes through the skylight like Batman or Dick Tracy before him. After using Skeevy as a distraction. Yeah, they also set up the money with the counterfeit money. It's a well-written action scene for an action movie because they set things up and they pay them off numerous times in this scene. So this action scene for a movie action scene inside of a movie, bravo, that's very good. My question to you here is, when the boy knocks Charles Dance over, and later on in the scene when Jack Slater does backflips or front flips and jumps off the rooftops and stuff like that. Are we meant to see the stunt doubles so obviously because it's a movie? <laughs> or is it just because we notice the stunt doubles? I'm guessing we notice the stunt doubles because I think we're supposed to believe he's the action hero who can do these things. Whether or not stunt doubles do them, when you're in the world of the movie, there are no stunt doubles unless that movie you're in is Spaceballs. Right. That's my point, is that I was hoping, and it's just maybe because we know movies so well, but when it's so obviously a stunt double... Nobody Arnold's size could make those flips. Obviously not. And then Charles Dance doing... It's a simple, the chair falls over, and then there's a cut to him hitting his head on the wall. So it was a really subtle moment, but I can understand why a stunt double would be asked to do that. That's why stunt doubles exist. I was questioning, though, whether or not it was supposed to be obvious or not, because I overthought this to the point of asking you guys that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we are now overthinking. None of this is working for me as an action movie, because I like my action movies to be much more grounded than this. Because this is an Arnold-style 80s action movie, again, I'm unhappy, because I don't like those movies. So this scene, to me, it really doesn't work, because it tries to turn into a moment where Danny tries to get the victory and it becomes some weird E.T. homage where he's on the bike going by the moon and realizes because he's the funny sidekick and not the hero, he can't get the bad guy. And all of that is so clumsy. It is. I like that he realizes he's the comedy sidekick while he's playing chicken on a girl's bicycle. I like that moment. The fact that, yes, he ends up going over the moon a step too far. Again, not a perfect film. But I can overlook that joke that doesn't work because I was laughing at Jack Slater electrocuting a guy just to make his body jerk and shoot a machine gun. You know, it's way over the top. 
that's what we're talking about with the tonal shifts in comedy. You have that great satire moment of the kid realizing he is the comic relief in a movie, which completely fits into the movie I want to see with the kid using action movies for his advantage and being an action movie versus a Zucker Brothers movie that you guys perfectly called out, that kind of thing, with an E.T. joke. So you have it right there in the same scene with two different tones is really difficult to root for this movie, even though they do get things right, like this kid realizing he's not going to survive the chicken fight. I think it's also important to recognize that this movie does have aspirations for E.T. It is supposed to be working as a Spielbergian fantasy where we're, I think, being asked to cry by the end of it when Arnold has to go home. God help us. But (laughs) yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. There's still a lot more tropes to explore, including the fact that Jack has to be fired. We all know that about action movies. Because of their untamped down ways, these cops, they break the rules, they pay for it by being sent home, and we get that moment here. But then you also get a moment when the chief is so angry, literal smoke comes out of his ears. So he's mumbling and talking so fast, and they finally call that out, but then you have the cartoonish smoke coming out of his ears. So again, they go too far with, what jokes are we doing here? What really works for the satire? They don't really know when to pull back. What McTiernan said is that what tone he was going for with this movie was Looney Tunes. Early on in this film, when you see Danny at home, he's watching a cartoon. What's he watching? Wiley Coyote with the TNT. Later on, there's literally going to be an Acme building there. So for him, he's going cartoonish. He's going Roadrunner. And so that's why you get some of these things. To me, I don't know that that's the right direction to go when parodying action movies. I do think the smoke coming out of the ears is stupid. I just can't find another word for it. It is absolutely stupid. Because you wouldn't see that in an action movie. Are they just trying to really draw attention to how angry he is? They do that by calling out how fast the guy's talking. And they do it still way too over the top when the guy's yelling and the glass on the door shatters just from the sound of his voice. I think that there's enough here. And again, maybe it would have been fixed in editing, but they need to know when to pull back. Although... McTiernan called out this was a very expensive CGI shot to have the smoke coming out of his ears, so I don't know that they'd cut an expensive CGI shot. I don't know why they didn't just put a fog machine up his back. Here's what it is, as I'm thinking about this. It feels like a lot of the time, because Arnold agreed to star in this movie, we want to see this as a parody of his classic action movie roles. But what if he didn't star in this? What if it were something else? Imagine if Arnold had passed... They probably still would have made this with somebody else. Clint Eastwood, I don't know. If you want to buy this, you can go to Walmart and in the $3.99 bin, this is a double feature with Hudson Hawk. So I could see this movie with Bruce Willis. Absolutely. I think the conception was, if we're not parroting Arnold, then we're doing Roger Rabbit, where it's a toontown of action movies. So you can have Whiskers, the animated cat, You can't have Humphrey Bogart in a special effects shot (laughs) that actually appears here because every kind of action hero, James Bond henchmen and all, live in this world. I think that is a different movie than making fun of Arnold movies. And I think, again, this is the problem with not having a very clear set of rules, which you really need in a fantasy film. We need to know how it works. 
We need to know the magic ticket, whatever it is. We need to understand what we need to understand in order to appreciate what they're making fun of. Otherwise, it just feels like a stew of many different ideas. But I think the stew is tasty. Maybe I don't like the onions in my stew in general, but overall, I think it's something on the menu I'd order again. Right. I believe that if you love this genre, there are enough jokes here that you are probably laughing and enjoying it as comedy mostly, but I hear you guys also saying the action works for you. Well, yeah, we have another action scene coming right up here with the funeral scene with the flatulent man, which is a funny, over-the-top premise. This guy is going to pass gas to kill everybody, even after he's dead. That thing fits in. You have the guy from The Godfather Part Two right in there as the mafia boss. It was a great idea to cast him. And I like the trope of, it's your partner who's against you. We were introduced to practice early on, played by F. Murray Abraham, and he was at the police station, and just like in another 48 hours, the cop that's been your buddy forever, spoiler alert for another 48 hours, is actually working for the bad guy, or is the bad guy. And so we get the hostage scene there, and there's subtlety going on here too, like they're at a L.A. Hyatt, <laughs> a Hyatt Regency though, they spray-painted the frickin' garbage cans gold, because in movie L.A., everything is so opulent, even garbage cans are gold. All right, so in this moment, it is supposed to evoke that real-world attack that Danny had, where he was chained to the toilet and all of that. The key comes back and all of that. Is that really the best use of resources? In this moment, is it helpful to remember that real-life violence is different from this absurd action movie? I don't think you needed that. I think you could have cut that. I think you could have cut all of this stuff and just had this kid be on it because he knows Amadeus. He knows F. Murray Abraham would be the rat. And to have him nail this guy ahead of Jack Slater, to have him save Jack Slater would probably be a better way to go than all of this shenanigan. And then we have them both get captured and the animated cat has to come save the day. Yes, unfortunately... This part of the movie, I agree with you completely. If you cut all that out, I do like they call out the trope that Arnie called, that the partner, the person you trust, is really the villain. Mm-hmm, sure. It's become a trope even in mystery movies and in, in suspense movies as well. So that works. Right after that, you have that big, big action scene afterwards, which is more fun and more in line with what I'm talking about of how this movie can shine in doing an over-the-top action scene in an action movie. If you know it's all a movie... Do you get excited watching him jump around on elevators and dangle over the La Brea tar pits? I guess that's my question for people that are more inclined to like this kind of entertainment. Yeah, because good stunts are good stunts, and they're not undercutting the stunts. Like Brock said with the stunt doubles, we don't see the wires. We don't see the harnesses that are keeping him up there, which wouldn't be, to me, as funny a joke as just seeing him pull off cool stunts. It's reminding me of True Lies, that elevator scene in True Lies to some degree. I enjoy the grandiosity of what's going on here at the funeral scene. I laugh less when every single person at the funeral scene has like an AK-47. That to me felt like a Johnny Dangerously joke, not a joke that fit in this movie. But I think, Stuart, with the kid not knowing how to work the crane and that Jack Slater has to go back and forth on the rooftop, that element works because this is an over-the-top action scene with all these elements that may or may not work with like the gun thing, 
But the fact that the kid is in an action movie for the first time, but doesn't know how to save Jack Slater effortlessly, that works for the tone of the movie that I want, the satire that I want. So you have an over-the-top action scene that things don't go to plan all of the time because this kid is an unknown element in that. And that could have been so much more fun if you did that consistently, that even though he enjoys the tropes of the movies and knows what's going to happen, he's not any good at it. Or he's not as successful as he wants to be. And then later in the movie, he uses the movie against itself to save the day, ultimately. So he has a bit of an arc. He needs an arc, for sure. And I don't think the arc should be the focus of this movie. is Because he's so smart, he's seen all the movies, he knows the tropes. That's not the arc. The arc is, he doesn't have a dad. He's grown up alone. He needs someone to mentor him. Those are the scenes that need to be punched up. The fact that he doesn't know how to use the crane, I think, is wrong. Because in this world, everyone knows how to do everything. Because the impossible happens every day. But he's not part of this world. He's from a different world, which is why he doesn't know how to use it, which is why that scene works the way it does, because he is an outside element in an action movie. Yes. So if they played up that aspect more, that would work for the same arc you're talking about. You can combine those two things as the same arc for the kid, because he'll be able to take what he learns from this action world being living in it back into the real world and become a more well-rounded person. I got to ask, all the flatulent humor, is that playing, pulling the finger, silent but deadly? I'm not one to get off on fart jokes, just in general, but it's fine. It's low-level humor that I see why they did it. I'm not laughing. I like the one-liners like silent but deadly more than I like the bloated corpse and things. I'm not sure. You know, not every joke hits for me. Jack Slater screaming, he's still alive, and running around the funeral and then hitting the doctor in the face to knock him out. The doctor's passed out. I think that would be really stupid even in a legitimate action movie, let alone here. But yeah, the crane stuff is kind of fun. The La Brea tar pits I actually really like because that seems like something an action movie would do to try to use the iconography of the geography. And so to drop a poison gas into the tar and see the tar bubble up but not explode. There's also an irony in the fact that this movie opening in the shadow of Jurassic Park, the fact that he's <laughs> covered in muck underneath these animatronic dinosaurs has its own sort of meta joke to it. <laughs> I like the joke of the very apart tar pits more when he's able to clean up so quickly with paper towels. For me, that's a level of humor that I thought was funnier because it does call out more of a satire. She comes with the clothes that he already has a closet full of, we saw earlier. He has only the same clothes like a video game character. Right. And so the fact that he's able to so clean so quickly, every time we cut back to him, he's even more clean. That's a gag that they call out, which is funny because we all notice that when people come out of the water five minutes later, they're completely dry. So that's more clever than fart jokes for sure. All right, so I feel like that's where the movie succeeds at best. It's really good at calling out the obvious over-the-top nature of Arnold's particular brand of action movie. And to another extent, it also knows how James Bond movies work. You're very focused on Arnold's specific brand of action movie. I don't think that's what this is necessarily going for. This isn't going for Commando. This is going for the lethal weapons and the things like that. It's not going for Predator. It's going for Die Hard 2. Okay, subtle distinction. The movies that Shane Black also... Again, I would actually say that they aren't the ones that are in the movies that are being parodied. Like, Shane Black didn't write Lethal Weapon 2 or 3. It feels like he is criticizing 
his baby from being perverted into that. Right, but those aren't Arnold films. I just think Arnold films are usually dumber, is how I'll put it. There's just not a lot of thought put into a commando or put into a raw deal, and not a lot of money. They're parodying big-budget action spectacles, which, other than Terminator 2, Arnold hasn't had many of by this point in his career. Yeah, he didn't do many buddy cops, and I feel like the trope here is the buddy cop formula. Red Heat is the only thing on his resume like that, so that's the only thing they can draw on. And James Belushi is here, yeah, as is all the previous co-stars. But let's talk about Charles Dance. You guys have singled him out for high praise. I like him in everything. I just want to put it out there. He's the best thing about Golden Child. He's really good in Alien 3. He's probably the best thing in Underworld 4. He's just always <laughs> someone I like watching in a movie. He has a really interesting, dramatic turn here. I actually will use the word love how he discovers he has this ticket. Now, I don't like magic ticket, but the fact that he realizes that suddenly the walls are permeable and he doesn't have to be a henchman anymore, and he very somberly comes to the conclusion that he's going to kill Anthony Quinn, and just when Slater blows in there, his truck is smashing through the window, and he's just calmly eating at the dinner table and realizing he doesn't have to play by these rules anymore, I think that's really powerful. I feel like, in some ways, I want to follow this character for the rest of the movie. He's far more interesting than what Arnold has going on with the kid. I can't argue with that. I don't like the Twilight Zone reference when he figures all the thing out. I think that's stupid. But I do like what you're talking about. I think they completely squander it Yeah. in a couple of scenes from now. But I agree, this moment is wonderful for him, and I do agree that they could have done so much more with this idea. He is the transition point where this movie is going to start transitioning to the real world and getting away from this humor, which is wearing thin by this point. After the big crane action scene, I'm ready to move on to the real world. I agree with you, 10 minutes easily cut out of this film, maybe 20, so... I'm glad when he starts doing it. I do love that he has constantly hated his boss and his boss's misuse of turns of phrase. I don't want to be a fourth wheel. You've done a 360 on me. He's wanted to kill this guy for a while. And now that he has the ticket, he has the confidence that he can do it. He can write his own movie. He doesn't have to follow the script. And so what this requires is that when we go to the real world, that it no longer feels like this over-the-top action spectacle. Unfortunately, most scenes aren't played for stark realism. Correct. But you have to have a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek, because it is a movie, but they still can't find the correct tone once they get to the real world. His moments when he shoots the gun in front of witnesses and no one cares, and all that stuff works great, but when Jack comes out of the screen with the boy and has that Buzz Lightyear moment, for some reason, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all with Jack Slater with the mother. No. Poor Mercedes rule. Moving the movie from Toontown into the real world doesn't play. The villain plays a little bit, but none of his decisions in the real world play, and none of Jack Slater's actions in the real world play. Oh, I love his decision in the real world. First of all, I love that a movie villain would be disgusted by real world crime. Uh gross prostitute approaches him in what you guys are telling me is fake Times Square, and he's just like, how old are you? And then I'm laughing out loud when he's like, to the mechanic, can you help me test a theory? 
And then he just starts screaming, I've killed someone on purpose. (laughs) No, I like that. And I even like the idea that, okay, why don't we take over this world? Why don't I go grab a newspaper, look at everything that's playing, including sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers! Don't bring those cats in here, please. (laughs) Please. (laughs) <laughs> i thought the same thing and single white female i love the movie that they pick from so you're saying that you like the idea that he goes into other movies and pulls in other movie villains because he mentions other movie villains i would have much rather him have pulled in right king kong <laughs> king kong freddy krueger and hannibal lecter the fact that he brings in the other guy, I understand it's a movie and why they did it, but my god, I think that's the world's worst choice for this character. He could have taken over this world, as you said, Arnie, without the help of any other Jack Slater villain. There is a deleted scene. He did bring in more people. Apparently, in the real world, a crime spree begins. He's pulled in mobsters from the 40s films and things like that. And they have Tommy guns and big hats and are doing bank robberies. That's a much better choice. If the inspiration is Roger Rabbit, and I think sometimes it is, you need that moment where Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny are on the screen together. You need to be able to call in those favors and get all those iconic movie characters to be running through Sunset Boulevard. We needed that moment. And you're right, the finale doesn't quite go that way. It ends up staying within the... Jack Slater world by bringing Ripper back to restage the kid on the roof scene at the premiere of Arnold's, actual Arnold Schwarzenegger's movie, Jack Slater 4. An interesting concept that they believe if you kill Arnold, then Jack Slater no longer exists. I'm not sure that that transitive property holds true, but it's a way to go, sort of. They don't even commit to it. I didn't understand if they thought that the previous Jack Slater would die, those movies would no longer exist. I couldn't understand what their thought process was, that Jack Slater could no longer be in further sequels, okay. Right. But I got the impression that they were thinking that he would just disappear from existence or something. Yeah, let's face it. The actor who played Death in The Seventh Seal is dead, and yet (laughs) Death can come off the screen and keep playing Death. But- They don't even hold to this. This is a way to get Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Arnold Schwarzenegger in the film, but he's barely in jeopardy in here. Again, they don't follow through on this idea very much, and the way they play it off is because the Ripper is just insane, and he is fixated on Jack Slater, not Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I do think that this kind of postmodernism would have been innovative, would have felt really radical. And again, I wonder... If the primary Arnold audience, which admittedly was growing, I was going to see his movies after Total Recall, Terminator 2, I wasn't before, but would many people think it's a good joke to see the real Arnold Schwarzenegger interact with his movie icon image? It's a fool's game to try to guess what other people would think in the mass. What I can tell you is I found this completely innovative at the time to see Jack Slater realizing he is Arnold Braunschweiger, and that he has to interact with Mercedes Rule, and the scene where they go to the Empire State Building, and I can't remember if this was a cut scene or if this was in the real movie, because there was more on the Empire State Building. But there's the moment of where Danny is like, let's get out there, we're not going to spot them from up here, and Jack Slayer's like, give me a minute, this is my first time in the real world, I'm looking at a real city. And I thought that was a nice moment. 
Except I feel like so often those moments are restagings of movie moments. Like when there's that chicken game in the alley and Arnold ends up falling on the car horn, that's replaying Chinatown. They even had a movie marquee with Chinatown written on it so you don't miss it. The kid hanging off and dangling in the rain is a restaging of Blade Runner. They want you to be always thinking about movie moments. They don't really have a good dramatization of reality. Raw, uncinematic, real-world reality. Nowadays, people don't think it's weird to see the quote-unquote real persona, whereas it's a strange thing to have Arnold Schwarzenegger be himself on screen. And what does that look like? And again, you're right, they only half do that idea. They go away from him so quickly that it feels like an underutilized notion. That should have been a lot of fun, should have been really head-trippy, and ends up just becoming a joke about celebrity impersonation. The best part of it is Maria Shriver going like, don't plug the restaurant, don't plug the gyms. Which apparently, if you hear the people at that time, that that is exactly how it was, that she had actually emasculated and taken control of Arnold's career. She didn't want him to do this movie, so take that for what you will. I thought she came off terribly. I didn't think that was the best part at all. If that's true to life, so be it. But I felt she came across very unflattering as a wife to him in this movie. Yes, that is the way that some people would see it. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe John McTiernan sees it exactly that way. I just took it as the wife giving the husband advice at the time. And I found her to be the best part because he's making fun of Arnold himself and hawking planet hollywood and all of that that's what i say by she's the best part she disappears pretty quickly is she even there when the ripper throws the axe at arnold i don't think she is so yeah i agree it feels like an idea that's right for exploration they only tease it i think the next decade would become much more fascinated with people's on-screen personas how they present to the world on youtube and reality television as opposed to who they really are These notions, I agree, this movie is at the forefront of that and suffers because it wasn't popular to do. Yes. Can't we celebrate it for being innovative instead of damning it for trying to get in the heads of the supposed theoretical average audience member and wonder what this theoretical non-existent person would understand? That's where I'm at and that's where I was in theaters in 1993, loving seeing Arnold play do roles one as himself. I'll celebrate it as much as I celebrate New Nightmare, but I get your point. Yeah, I get your point too, Arnie, but I gotta tell you, I think we can do both here. Right. Having a cool idea and being able to execute it are two different things, and this movie shows where there's a gap. A big one. Okay, but there's a lot of straw man arguments going on against this film in this podcast right now. How so? Because you keep going, will the audience, will the audience. That theoretical audience is a straw man. You make that sound like that's criticism. I'm just asking, if you were investing in a $80, $90 million movie, would you think his audience would get that and reward you with giving their money? I don't know that the audience was savvy enough. That's the word I'd use. I don't know that they're savvy enough to understand all this insider Hollywood stuff to think that it's funny to see all of this postmodern interplay. But I mean, I like it. I get it. That's not me saying this movie shouldn't be made. Okay, and that's kind of how it comes off, is a lot of criticism. Then let me be blunt. I am not criticizing the movie for daring this premise. I praise this movie for taking this notion and making an Arnold action movie much smarter than it's ever had to be before. Yes, thank you. That's where I'm at. Well, my issue of the audience being savvy enough 
is only right here. The rest of the stuff I think the audience can get if they want to. My issue is they've been calling it out too much. They keep blatantly pointing it out to the audience, whereas the audience, I think, is already in on, we know this stuff is over the top. So my take on this movie, Arnie, is not that at all. And as David Smith said, this movie has been reappraised in the years since, and so I guess it's a good thing we're reviewing this movie in 2022, where we all know, and most of the people know, and I'm sure all of our listeners know, what's going on. And again, this is just a hypothetical thinking about the audience then question. How many people in the audience are going to know The Seventh Seal? An <laughs> Igbar Bergman, 1957, metaphorical story about death playing chess and exploring existentialism. It's a big gambit to say suddenly he's your major villain, your end boss, so to speak, Ian McKellen playing the Grim Reaper stepping off the art house screen. Well, Bill and Ted Bogus Journey came out the year before or two years before, and they had a play on that there. But I still don't think 16-year-old Brock got the Seventh Seal reference in right. Bill and Ted. I enjoyed Bill and Ted very much. My issue here is five minutes ago they mentioned Freddy Krueger, and I wanted to see him instead. If you're bringing people in from other movies, why this one? And why only one? So Arnie said there's a cutscene where they had 40s gangsters. That would have been so much better, and this scene would have played so much better if they had other people from other movies come in, other tropes. So this death is a trope versus being a Seventh Seal guy if you had the 40s mobster guy, if you had a damsel in distress, something like that. More of those people coming in to only bring in Ripper and this death guy doesn't play enough with this concept. Now I'm wishing, much like Sleepwalkers and Single White Female, that... It had been Bill and Ted's bogus journey that was playing, and William Sadler walked off the screen as death. But here, I agree with you, Seven Seal, I only knew about it because of Bill and Ted. I went and <laughs> watched it after seeing Bill and Ted, so I could see what Bill and Ted was mocking. Good movie. But it is a little bit older. Even Chinatown was older by the time. I didn't know what Chinatown was or that they were referencing Chinatown in this movie. That's the good thing about this movie is death is such a trope that you don't have to know where this imagery came from to know what Ian McKellen is doing. And I didn't know who Ian McKellen was when I first saw this film either. And let me agree with you guys, the real world becomes too much of an action world during the showdown between the Ripper and Jack Slater, because this is redemption for Jack Slater that would fit far better in Jack Slater 4 than in The Last Action Hero. Because the Ripper throws Danny off the roof, but Danny actually grabbed onto something, and Jack's able to rescue him the way he wasn't able to rescue his son. You're right, Stuart. And I had the problem with it even being here. Everything involving Jack Slater's son and that father-son connection doesn't work here and doesn't feel real world. But then we have Charles Dance showing up. And we get that Jack is hurt in this real world. He can die. He never will die in the movies. But here, he took it to the stomach and trying to protect that kid dangling off the roof. And now, this is sentimentality, right? They really want us to buy into this moment of Tinkerbell is going to die. Is it sentimental or is it, again, drawing attention to, in an action movie like Beverly Hills Cop, like Commando, He'll get shot like this and just put a bandage around his arm and be fine. And now here he's bleeding out and being rushed to the hospital and probably going to die. We know he's going to go back into the movies. I think it's meaningful to know 
that this kid is going to have to live without a father. I think that was the intent. That he thought that he had found the dad that he didn't have in the real world. Not unlike T2, the John Connor thing, but far less successful. Can we all agree? (laughs) No one is crying. Completely agree. I never cried in this movie, and I did well up when I saw Terminator 2 in theaters. I couldn't (laughs) believe that they did that ending in D2. Yeah. A whole lot, like, they bring up the magician and the ticket and all of this, that he gets trapped in there, E.T. goes home. That they have to find the other half of the ticket is a little bit annoying, and it makes me wonder, is the first half of the ticket just blowing around New York streets, pulling people out of movies everywhere it goes? Well, that would be a funny idea, wouldn't it? But then also the fact that we, the audience, the three of us and the rest of the audience, figured out that there's another half of the ticket before the people in the movie did. Okay, the fact that they focus in on the movie box to make sure all of us are on it is unnecessary. Again, I think the movie oftentimes doesn't give enough credit to the audience that's actually watching it that they're smarter than they let on. Or maybe you're giving them too much credit, Brock. Maybe they're not. Possibly, because they keep calling out things that I think are unneeded to be called out. Mm -hmm. And this is another one right here, is this focusing a quick moment on the ticket box where the other half of the ticket's going to be before the people in the movie are told flat out, go find the other half of the ticket. All I know is when they screened this, and they had multiple screenings throughout LA, the comic cards always came back confused. Audiences really, I think, struggled to understand this concept. And... At that time, Arnold fans didn't want a mocking version of an action movie. They wanted him to be in another kick-ass action movie. And to see him with this kid and all of that, I just don't think that it played. We get it now. I agree. We get it now in ways we could not have collectively in 1993. Did either of you see the alternate ending of this movie, though? Because there was an extended ending. This movie, Jack Slater goes back into the movies. The doctor rushes over. Apparently, this is a big in-joke because that's one of the most famous script doctors in Hollywood playing the doctor. And he comes in and goes, I'm a doctor. And then this is barely a flesh wound. And we see Jack Slater go to his boss and be like, you're the comic relief. And again, it kind of makes me wonder what the rules are for the movies. But then it kept going. And we see Danny in the movie theater. And he leaves the movie theater, and there's cops outside and crowds outside. Obviously, there would be, first of all, death just killed a cop outside. (laughs) And second of all, there'd been all of that excitement. And Mercedes Rule is there, Danny's mom, and she's like, okay, you don't need to tell me what's gone on. You can tell me on my deathbed. I'll probably believe it then. But where's your friend Jack? And this is something I don't like. She's like... I would have liked for the three of us to be able to go out to dinner sometimes. And Danny says, I think I can arrange him to visit from time to time, as if to say he still has that magic ticket and he could bring Jack Slater out anytime he wants. That completely undercuts what you're saying, Stuart, about losing the father figure if Jack Slater can just travel between worlds whenever Danny wants him to. Right. One other thing I do like at the end of the credits was a power ballad. Def Leppard's Two Steps Behind. I thought that was completely appropriate for an action movie. That was an actual hit. I knew that song without knowing it was connected to this movie. Oh, I love, love, love the soundtrack to this movie. I was a pizza delivery guy. So I was in my car a good eight hours a day. I was listening to the last Action Hero soundtrack at least half of all of those days with ACDC and 
Queensryche, Cypress Hill, and Aerosmith with Dream On. This has got such a kick-ass soundtrack associated with it. Strong, strong, strong recommend for the soundtrack. It did get a Razzie nomination for Worst Song for the ACDC contribution, but Tesla is the one that deserves it. Their last action hero sucks. (laughs) You know who's not on the soundtrack? Hammer, who's in this movie, like, Jack Slater 5, I'm on the soundtrack, right? By this point, he couldn't even get on Last Action Hero soundtrack. Adam's groove really put the kibosh on him. Let's see if we recommend, recommend, recommend the actual movie. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Last Action Hero? Stuart. No, I'm not going to recommend it, but I don't think it's a big mistake. My qualifier is that I actually think that there is a great movie in here, and the tragedy is... They didn't take the time and didn't get probably the right people involved to make it work. If you wanted to explore the tropes of action movie cliches, and more importantly, what they mean to a young adolescent male audience, that is good fodder. That is a place that Arnold can go if he's trying to elevate his career and show that he has range. It could have been his best comedy ever. Instead, it feels like a really messy action film that sometimes confuses clever for smug. And particularly by having that child literally in the back seat for half the movie going, this is just a movie, it's a real pill. It really hurts what could have been a smart, funny, heartwarming family film. And so, I don't know. You guys can tell me whether it works as an action movie, not my genre. I can say it didn't help Arnold, and he needed to find a comedy that works better than this. I think you'll find it next week, but no. Last Action Hero, while undeserving of all the hatred, is definitely not a good film. Arnie. Absolutely recommend. It's not a perfect film. It's got flaws. The flaws are not fatal. Much like a shot to Jack Slater's chest in a movie, it's barely even a flesh wound of flaws. You've got here a movie that works on multiple levels. I do like the stunts that are performed here, the explosions. Let's not think that stuntmen and pyrotechnics men were laughing behind the scenes. They had to pull off real practical stunts that really impress when blown up on a nice big screen for this. And you've got a comedy that was ahead of its time, poking fun at the tropes in a way that feels much smarter than Loaded Weapon 1 that came out around the same time as this, I think a little bit before. The dramatics are where this movie fails. I don't understand the moment, and John McTiernan is like, I wrote this scene myself and put it in here. I don't understand the moment where Jack Slater looks at Arnold Schwarzenegger and says, I don't like you very much. I would much more think Arnold Schwarzenegger would look at Jack Slater and say, I don't like you very much. You've dominated my life, you may have paid for my lifestyle, but I don't like the things my characters represent. I don't understand that moment. And the father-son stuff, we've discussed ad nauseum. But Tom Noonan, Charles Dance, they're really fun to watch. There's a lot of fun in this last action hero movie that I feel was totally disregarded at the time. And as Stuart said, people wanted to make Arnold bleed at that time. They all took their daggers and stuck him. This movie is undeserving of that. It's definitely a recommend. I hope you've checked it out before this podcast, and if not, please check it out after. I think you're going to be happily surprised. I disagree with a lot of what Arnie just said. 
I do agree with him that the stunt work is great. The movie making here is wonderful. The technical side of this movie is absolutely there. The action scenes are well, well done. They do get some of the satire down very, very well. I've been very clear about my point of view on this movie is the tone of this movie is all over the place to the point where I'm having trouble getting purchase in what kind of satire, what kind of comedy they're doing here. And I don't think they knew either based on what I'm seeing on the screen. I know all the outside factors. We've talked about them here, about how they didn't have time to cut this movie, how they didn't have a chance to really get down to the nuts and bolts to get maybe 10 or 15 minutes cut out of this to make it a cleaner, slicker, faster movie. The problems here with the character, no matter how they edited it, wouldn't have helped. And the character of Danny, instead of going along with the movie, crapping on it the whole time, how he's in a movie, he's in a movie, he's in a movie. That is a fundamental problem with the screenplay I have trouble with. But as soon as they mentioned Magic Ticket with Houdini, I knew we were in trouble. (laughs) So that was the issue, is that the major points of this movie with Houdini (laughs) and this child's point of view once he's in the movie, no matter how you cut this movie, could not have fixed that. And so unfortunately for me, I did not have as good a time as Arnie. I wish I could have as good a time as Arnie did with this movie. I will agree with you both. This movie does not deserve the terrible reputation it gets. There is a good movie here somewhere. I don't think they have the bones in this movie to find it with what they have, unfortunately. I think, much like they did with Ocean's Eleven, if they take this movie and make this movie now, right now, with this movie, with these kinds of ideas, it could play and play wonderfully. Maybe Ryan Reynolds did something a little bit like that with Free Guy. So we've seen these kinds of things work nowadays. I would be very curious if they get someone to do a remake of this movie now and see how the audience likes it. It's a red arrow for me for Last Action Hero. And Arnie, I'm curious, because this has turned into an Arnold Schwarzenegger retrospective, how specifically do you think he did in this role? If it could have been Bruce Willis, if it could have been somebody else, I think he would have had a more successful movie. For me... It's a failure for Arnold, whether you like the movie or not. He was not able to live up to this movie's ambitions. I said the dramatics of this film failed, and I feel that that goes on Arnold. Yeah. I feel like the two Arnold scene is the weakest scene in the movie, and that can only go on Arnold. Although the scriptwriter didn't help it, and again, McTiernan did that, so he didn't help all that much. But in the action movie, Arnold is great. Delivering the one-liners like Arnold was known to do, yep. he was perfect. Once we hop in the real world, he falters. Yet, I do like the jokes about Planet Hollywood. I think this movie was tailor-made for him. I think it was written with him in mind. But yeah, as we saw with Die Hard, which wasn't written with Bruce Willis in mind, if you'd had a different actor in here, you'd have had a different movie. And... Maybe one you guys would have liked better. Maybe one I wouldn't have liked as much. I do think we made a huge jump. Arnold learned how to act a lot better between Red Heat and here. So I think he does okay. I think he's good in this movie for the most part, too. I agree with you. I did like him a lot in the first two-thirds of this movie. I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger came to play. Unfortunately, once they get to the real world, it all falls apart for him. Well... Schwarzenegger, in my mind, has never been better than when he's paired with James Cameron, so I'm really interested to see what Cameron can do with him outside of the Terminator franchise. He had actually already made True Lies before this movie premiered, just took a long time in post-production, another full year before it came out. But I think it's going to correct 
a lot of the things that went awry for Arnold here. We'll have to see next week. No, if I remember True Lies correctly, and it's been many, many, many years since I've seen it, they do a little bit of spoofing of the genre in that movie, and much more successfully. So the fact that Arnold had two back-to-back movies with those ideas, and one being a giant hit and one not so much, I'm looking forward to talking about next week with you two. And in the meantime, a couple of things. First of all, Last Action Hero is in our book, as are 124 other underrated movies. Maybe you won't like Last Action Hero, but I pretty much can guarantee 125 movies, 375 movie reviews. If you haven't had a chance to check out our book, it is shipping now. You can order your copy at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. And I believe Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is also in there, a movie we mentioned on today's podcast. So again, another good reason to pick up that book, because... There's a great review that our team did of that movie there. But not Seven Seal. Nobody ever thought that was underrated. <laughs> <laughs> it always was a classic. Might be underseen these days. I don't yeah. know how many people go back to it outside of film classes in college. Right. And they're probably dropping those from there, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we get to True Lies, we have another Adams Family show coming up. This time, Tim Curry in Adam's Family Reunion. Yeah, the family's getting back together. We all remember how much we loved Daryl Hannah and the last couple, right? Oh yeah, she was great. I'm anxious to know something. I am <laughs> on pins and needles. Is Tim Curry going to do a Spanish accent for Gomez? Mm. <laughs> I don't know anything about this one. So uh, it'll be a surprise for all of us this Friday. If you can find the money for a silver level, I hope you join in on this reunion and we can see what it's all about. You can find details for that at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And we'll be back. I thought I was going to die. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're going to live to enjoy all the glorious fruits life has to offer. Acne, shaving, premature ejaculation, and your first divorce. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We talked. It's neat. And a special thanks to David Smith for his tremendous support of Now Playing and for picking Last Action Hero for our hosts to review. This hero stuff is its limits. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I'm scared I'm never going to see you again. Whoever thinks that, I'm going to be making a big mistake. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more at nowplayingpodcast.com. No sequel for you. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. No way, you can't die till the grosses go down. You can donate directly at nowplayingpodcast.com. Listen to me. This is important. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. You are gonna pay. Ooh, are you gonna pay. 
Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. It's not much, but still showbiz. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Sir, are you a henchman? No, I only go as far as lucky. Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. You can't go through life nitpicking every little thing. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. You believed in the movies. Why not now? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You made the classic movie mistake. Don't explain so much. You had to get in those last few words. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Uh, I'm getting bored. Why don't we just skip to the end? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Wait, where are you going? I'll be back. Ha! You did not gonna say that, did you? That's what you always say. I do? Rubber baby buggy bumpers. Going down the rabbit holes he'd prefer to, to investigate whoever attacked him on that highway. I hear what you're saying. I'll just leave it at this. And I just left it. The thought just left my head as I said that. <laughs> um, Rubber baby buggy bumpers.